Good morning, folks. Good morning. We give you a really warm welcome to our morning worship here at St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland. My name is Stuart. I'm one of the deacons in the church here this morning in the church here and I will lead you through the service this morning. Our preacher this morning is Sinclair Ferguson who will bring us God's word to us later on. Hear what scripture says, I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness stands forever. We're going to stand and praise this God as we sing together Psalm 23. It's the town end version of Psalm 23. So if we stand and sing that together just now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we can't express or conceive how good you are. When we look at creation, we see that you are almighty. Your wisdom is displayed in how you arrange our lives. But most of all, we see your love in the gospel of your son, Jesus. And we thank you that he has delivered us from our sin. He has justified and sanctified us. He has set us on the road to eternal life. Heavenly Father, we 
pray that you would help us to realize that to, to be with Jesus and to walk with him is the most important thing we can do. All other things turn to shadows when we think of him. Heavenly Father, we would pray this morning that you would speak to us as we look at your word and you would change us to be more like your son. Amen. On a Sunday morning, we confess our sins together as a body of God's people. The confession appears on the screen behind and we read these together just now. Father, we are sorry for the many times we have left you and chosen to satisfy our own selfish desires. For the times we have hurt the members of our families by refusing to do our share of the family tasks. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. For the times we were unkind and impatient with those who needed our time and concern. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. For the times we were too weak to stand up for what was right and allowed others to suffer because of our cowardice. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. For the times we refused to forgive others. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. And receive from Scripture the assurance of pardon. The Lord is gracious, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Amen. A few notices to go through this morning. Um, we're going to have a slightly shortened um, service this morning. There is no Sunday school. Um, there are worksheets available at the back. So um, when the sermon starts, if you want to, or just before it starts, if you want to go and pick them up um, for your children as they sit in the service this morning. There is still a creche and nursery. So I think if you're under four and a half, if you go through for, for creche and nursery um, as usual. Um, the shoebox appeal, um, we are doing the shoebox for the Blyswood shoebox appeal. We have two Sundays to get these back to the church, so they have to be here by Sunday the 27th. Um, again, there are leaflets at the back if you want to take them home to find out what you need to do to get the shoeboxes together. Um, at the back of the church on a table, there are some letters from Edinburgh. Um, that's for people who have given to the church via gift aid, and it's a letter from Edinburgh just thanking you for that. Um, Chris, can you come and just give, tell us a little bit about aspiring what's needed? Okay, if you were with us before summer, uh, you might recall that we had the summer program where we had uh, visitors over from America working alongside some of our local volunteers uh, in Charleston, and we ran a holiday club, we ran a couple of camps and an activity week, these sorts of things. Um, what goes on through the rest of the year is the, is the continued contact that we have with the kids largely uh, from the Charleston area. Um, Monday Club has existed at this church in some way or another forever, um, and I've, I've been involved with it over the years. Um, the, the way that that's turned out now is that Monday Club is now in Charleston. Um, we, between schools going back after the summer and stopping off again a couple of weeks ago, We've averaged about 25 to 30 kids um, each Monday. Of those kids, about half a dozen of them, you will know they come here on a Sunday morning because they're, they're our kids, two of them are mine, and then there's some other kids from families here. The rest of the kids, the bulk of them are from Charleston. Um, and for a lot of them, it's the only Christian contact that they, they have in terms of receiving a gospel message. The way that Monday Club works, it's an hour, so it's quite, it's quite crammed in. Uh, they get some games, they get a snack, 
they usually get some sort of craft activity to do, uh, and they also get uh, some Bible teaching. Um, it says it's one hour, it's up to 30 kids, uh, and we don't advertise. Um, so if we did advertise, it may be more than 30 kids. But it's, it's really just worked uh, with word of mouth, um, and it's, it's, it's almost as if it just keeps happening, that the kids just keep coming. It's the very definition of a plentiful harvest, and that harvest needs a few workers. So if you're able to give up an hour um, on a Monday um, to assist us with that, you don't need to be up front. You don't need to be doing lots of talks. Um, you don't even need to be that energetic and get involved in the games. S- some of that would be helpful, but if you're able to prepare snack, if you're able to help four-year-olds with glue uh, and cutting and these sorts of things. What we've had over the last term, we've had all the kids together, and it's quite a large age span. It goes from four years up to 11 years. That's vast in terms of child development, and we've had to have them all together. Um, and the sort of games that the 10- and 11-year-olds want to play are different from the sort of games that the 4- and 5-year-olds are able to play. Um, so ideally, I'd like to be able to split us off, um, you know, sort of split them up in, into two groups, um, but that does need a certain number of volunteers. So I will be around after the service. Please come and speak to me if you think you can give up uh, an hour of your Monday evening um, uh, for what's really a very important work. So come and speak to me afterwards. Thank you. And our final announcement is about um, Chris and Sarah's wedding, which is a week tomorrow. Um, Maria's organising refreshments, but needs people to help serve. So if you're able to do that on Monday, if you can speak to Maria. Also, Tim Brow is organising the setup and the tidy up after the wedding and is needing people to help him with that. So again, if you're able to help with that, if you could see Tim. That's most of our notice. The rest will scroll around at the end of the service, so pay attention to them at that point as well, please. Thank you. Singular, if you can come and talk to the children, that'd be great. Okay, boys and girls, come and meet me at the front. At the front. Don't need to kneel. Okay. You're still on holiday from school? Hey. We need some attention here, don't we? Now, you shouldn't put your hand up when I haven't said anything yet. It will, it will put me off. What I wanted to say was this. Do you know the names of some of the people who wrote the books in the New Testament? People like, who wrote the first book in the New Testament? A man called Matthew. And then there was a man called Luke. Another man called Mark, and then another man called John, and then a man called Paul, a man called James, a man called Jude. Lots of these men. Now, which one of these men would I like to share my iron brew with, or my Coke, or my coffee? Which one, which, 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 one of, which one of these men? Now, Matthew was a tax collector before he became a Christian. So, maybe... Oh, you hurt your finger. I'm glad it's got better. Good. And you've hurt... How many of you have ever hurt your finger? Okay, well, let, let's get back to the New Testament where we have no heart fingers, since I'm losing control here. (laughs) If I could choose one of these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, which, or Paul, which of these men would I choose to be able to talk? Luke, well, that would be interesting. The one I'd really like to spend some time with is John. John, who wrote the fourth gospel. And here's the reason. Actually, I told you the first reason last week, which is the first verse in the Bible that ever really spoke to me was in John's gospel. The second reason is this. You listening? Of course you're listening. The second reason is that the night I became 
a follower of Jesus, I was listening to a sermon from John's Gospel. And here's the third reason. Listening very carefully, because this bit is really important. John calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. He calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Matthew doesn't say that, and Mark doesn't say that, and Luke doesn't say that. But John says he was the disciple Jesus loved. Now, I have a question for you, okay? Listening for the question. Do you think Jesus loved John more than he loved the other disciples? How many of you think he loved John more than… So, what did John mean when he said, I am the disciple Jesus loved? He meant that he had discovered how much Jesus loved him. I agree with you. I think you were right. I do not think that John thought that Jesus loved him more than he loved the other disciples. But what we do think, don't we, is this, that the wonderful thing John discovered was that the Lord Jesus really, really, really loved him. And you know, that is the most important thing in the world to know. That's the most important thing in the world to know, to be able to say, I am the disciple that the Lord Jesus loved. Now, how do we know that Jesus loves us? We know that Jesus loves us because, because well, but the reason we're Christians is because He loved us. And He loved us so much that He was willing to die on the cross for us to be our Savior. So, I hope in good times and bad times, you will be able to remember that I am the disciple Jesus loved. Let's thank Him for that. Lord Jesus, thank You that You have loved us so much that You came to live on earth and to die for our sins and to rise to be our Savior and our Lord. And we pray for ourselves and for our mums and dads and for everybody in the service today that every single one of us will know that we have become the disciple that Jesus loved. And we thank you for this love and pray that you would bless us. Amen. Okay, back to your seats and we'll see you later. We're going to sing again. We'll stand and sing, You're the Shepherd, We're the Sheep. Um, while we're singing this, the collection will be uplifted. Um, and after we've sung this, the youngest children, so if you're under four and a half, the creche and nursery are still on. So we're going to stand just now and sing, You're the Shepherd, We're the Sheep. Thank you. 
Okay, so if the children want to leave for nursery and creche. Before Sinclair comes to, to preach from God's word, we're going to sing again. Uh, we'll stand and sing, Have You Heard the Voice of Jesus? And during the singing of this, if you haven't got a worksheet for a, a child who's still staying in, there should be some at the back, and it'd be a good point to get that just now. So we're going to stand and sing, Have You Heard the Voice of Jesus? Bibles to the book of Revelation again, and to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're going to read chapter 5, and you'll find the passage on page 1237 if you're using one of the church Bibles, 1237. This is the second part, the uh, second half of the great vision that John has uh, on the Lord's Day when he's in exile in Patmos. He has seen the throne in heaven occupied by one who is seated on it, and strange and wonderful creatures and 24 elders who praise and worship God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, last week we looked at the first part of this extraordinary vision that John has. You'll remember from chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that he is exiled because he's a Christian believer. He has been persecuted and removed from the various churches that he has served. And there he is, he tells us, on the Lord's day in exile on the island of Patmos, and the, the subtext is he is therefore not able to gather with the Lord's people. And yet he has the most experience, the most extraordinary experience of worship that presumably he has ever had. He can't get to worship on earth, and so the Lord in his grace brings him into a conscious sense of the worship that is going on in heaven, and he is caught up in the Spirit. And of course, the implication seems to be that this actually is what happens when God's people are in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The difference is that John seems to see it and enter into it and experience it in a visual as well as an audible way. What we understand takes place by faith because these things we do not see. John, the, the seer, is invited both to see and to hear. And he's given this great vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and then in chapters 2 and 3, the sevens of the book of Revelation begin. Well, there's a whole series of cycles of sevens. And the first is Jesus' analysis and assessment and sometimes critique and sometimes encouragement of the situation of the church in earth. And then John is told that the Lord is going to reveal to him what is going to take place after this. 
And it's in between these two realities. Because we know the book of Revelation, we know now what John did not know then, that what is going to take place afterwards is full of horror and pain for the Christian church. But he's between these two realities, the reality of the weakness and frailty of the church, some of the congregations hanging on by the skin of their fingers. And he presumably has some sense from his own experience that there are challenges that await Christian believers. And in God's grace, in Christ's mercy, he is shown what he needs to see. In between the frailty of the church on the one hand and the situation in the world on the other hand, what he needs to see is that God is still on the throne, that God reigns, that God rules, that God's will is perfectly done in heaven and that God will work out His purposes here on earth. And so, as we saw last time at the beginning of chapter 4, he's, He sees a door. It's a, it's a temple door, and he's, he's invited in to this heavenly temple, to the throne room of God. And he sees in much greater detail what some of the Old Testament prophets were invited also to see. The prophet Isaiah, in the, in the year Isaiah died, when he was in need, under stress, he, he saw this. And Ezekiel had a sense of this when he knew God's people were under judgment. And Zechariah had some sense of this. Um, but they lived in, in days of opaque vision of the majesty of God in Christ. And now John is, he's invited in. Uh, he is, he has a, an experience perhaps similar to what the Apostle Paul described in Second Corinthians 12. He was, he was caught up, he said, into, and he saw things that would be unlawful to share. And John judges that these things are now no longer unlawful to share the throne of God, these amazing creatures, this, this peon of praise. And of course, it's a picture. It's full of, of symbols that present an even greater reality. Uh, but it's only when we turn into chapter 4 that, that the real drama begins to emerge. And it emerges slowly. First of all, John, you see, is so caught up into this vision that he actually becomes part of it. You ever had that experience in a dream where you actually, you actually become part of the dream in your, in your dream world? You're watching yourself, even hearing yourself, and feeling the emotions and, and and John is caught up here. He's so brought into this that he actually engages in a conversation with one of the elders. But the first thing that we notice is what he sees. And, and it's as though his, his vision is clarifying. He's seen the big picture. Now his eyes are focusing. And in the first verses, he sees a seal scroll. And the scroll is in the hand of the one who sits on the throne, and it is sealed with seven seals. It's written on the front and on the back. It's packed full, as it were, of something. And then he hears this strong angel. Now, you'd think all angels are strong. So this is an especially strong angel with an especially loud voice and he is the herald of heaven. And with this loud voice, he calls upon the whole cosmos to find out if there is somebody who can take this scroll out of the hands of the one who is seated on the throne, break open the seals, and as it were, let what is written within the scroll emerge in the reality of history. And you'll notice it's a cosmic proclamation. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll 
to break its seals. Verse 2, verse 3, heaven, earth, under the earth, provide none. Not the angels, nor the archangels, not the saints of the Old Testament, no creature that is seen to be under the earth, no power is able to step forward. No individual is worthy or qualified or able or powerful enough to take the scroll out of the hand of God, break open its seals, and release the realities that are described within the scroll. And you notice what John does. He bursts into tears. He bursts into tears. Now, why would he do that? He doesn't know what's in the scroll, so why would he burst into tears? For a pretty obvious reason, really, don't you think? That he realizes that whatever is in this scroll is of monumental importance. If the loud angel has heralded an invitation for someone in heaven or earth or under the earth to come forward, take this scroll, break the seals, release its contents, this is of monumental importance. But that still leaves the question, what's in the scroll? Uh, They say about the book of Revelation that if you're studying it, you should use only one commentary because you may be wrong, but you'll not be confused. And you can imagine there's a multitude of different views of what is in this scroll. But I actually think it's fairly obvious what's in this scroll. Because when this scroll is actually opened, we're told what is in the scroll. And there begins this cycle of events in history. And and they all come in sevens. Um, The seven seals are broken. And then uh, there are seven trumpets that are sounded. And and then there are seven pictures that are presented to us. And then there are seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And and as, as many commentators think that the best way to think about this is as if you were going round a spiral staircase, round and round the same realities which always end in the final judgment and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the the higher you go, the, the better a picture you get of what it is that God is doing in the world. And the rest of the book of Revelation is filled with two realities. God's judgment on evil and on sin, ultimately leading to the destruction of Babylon. And on the other hand, God's salvation of His people, ultimately leading to the presence of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And although John clearly does not see this in detail, he I think equally clearly has some sense that, that what, is in, what is in this seal is the purposes of God for all future history. God's judgment on evil and God's salvation of His people. And he weeps because he's, he's looking in a situation and there is no one who is able to unravel these two great mysteries of human history, the way in which God judges evil and the way in which God saves His people. And the book lies, the scroll lies, unopened, silent, and inert in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And you can sympathize with John Uh, You probably sympathized with John without thinking about this chapter when Will was praying earlier on. But the situations in the world, the needs of the world, the confusion of the world. You know, if, if, if someone is in this situation where they have no sense that God is on the throne, 
that there is a purpose to history, that God is in control, that God will judge evil and he will establish his kingdom, then if you were right thinking, you would weep, wouldn't you? You would weep. And this is the situation that John is in. Until, as the narrative unfolds, his grief is interrupted by one of the elders who sounds a bit like his father, doesn't he? Stop crying. Stop crying, says the elder. And look. See, it's almost as though... It's almost as though what we're meant to picture is that because John is weeping at the situation in the world, the, the fact that he, he now in the, in the vision has no assurance that God will judge evil and that God will establish his kingdom, what are his tears doing? His tears are blinding him to what is actually happening. And so the elder says, stop crying, John, wipe away your tears. So in this vision, having seen the sealed scroll in verses 1 to 4, he's now given direction by this elder in verses 5 to 7. There is something he needs to see. And what he hears and sees links together two different strands of of Old Testament prophecy. One of them is the prophecy that we find in Genesis uh, chapter 49 and also in the prophecy of Isaiah uh, chapter 11 about the, the way the Messiah would come as, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And it's this magnificent picture that runs through the Old Testament scriptures of the way in which God will establish his reign through the coming of the Messiah. And, and John hears these words. He says, says the elder, look, John, dry your eyes and look. What do you see? You will see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered who has conquered. And that word brings us right back to the very first promise of the Messiah, doesn't it? The very first promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 is not a promise of the forgiveness of sins. It's a promise of victory, of conquest over the evil one and the powers of darkness and and. And the elder is saying, look, John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered, and he's able to open the scroll, break its seals, and release the purposes of God for all future history, and mediate the sovereignty of God for all future history. And then comes one of the great dramatic moments, isn't it, in Scripture where um, no, ma- no matter how many times you read this chapter, it should always take your breath away that John turns and instead of seeing a lion, he tells us he saw a lamb. And he tells us two things about the lamb. The first is that it was standing, it was alive. And the second is that though it was standing, it looked as though it had been slain. And this You see, John, as we saw last time, John sees these realities through lenses that have been crafted by his intimate knowledge of Scripture, and he he understands what this means. This means that the promise that Abraham gave to his son Isaac in Genesis 22, that it's come true. Remember when they're going up Mount Moriah and Isaac's got everything that's needed for the sacrifice they're going to make. And he says to his father, Father, we've everything for the sacrifice except the sacrifice. He doesn't know he's supposed to be the sacrifice. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham gives this breathtaking response God himself will provide 
the lamb for the sacrifice. And you can trace that, can't you, through the the Old Testament, the way God provided the lamb for the sacrifice at the Exodus and, and through the great prophecy of Isaiah about the one who would be led as a lamb to the slaughter and who, like a sheep before her shearers, would be dumb, who would not open his mouth, but who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, upon whom the chastisement that brings us peace would be meted out and with whose beatings we would be healed. It's an amazing moment. He sees that the lion of the tribe of Judah is also the Lamb of God that John had described, John the Baptist, as the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And he takes the scroll, and as the chapters that follow indicate, one by one by one, he breaks open the seals. And all future history expressing the ongoing power of evil and wickedness, yet God's judgment on it, and the ongoing protection and establishing of the people of God, the church of Christ, the kingdom of God, that both of these things begin to emerge. And actually what the book of Revelation teaches us is that the Lord Jesus is the mediator of both. Which is why in chapter 6, when we're given this vision of the final judgment and people are running to the hills and the caves and the mountains and asking them to fall upon them to protect them from God's judgment, what they want protection from is the wrath of the Lamb. As Thomas Boston said, to be damned by Him who came to save sinners is to be doubly damned. And yet at the same time, He is the the Savior, the mediator of salvation. This is why He's presented, isn't it, as the Lamb who looked as though it had been slain because He was slain, but now He's alive. And as the risen and living Savior, he's, he's going to mediate all history. Jesus is in control. Christ is going to have the victory. And you notice what then happens. Um, in verses 8 to 14 there is a spontaneous response. And he hears the chorus of heavenly worship. So the passage begins with him seeing the scroll. It moves on in this conversation with the elder. And he ends again as chapter 4 did in, in this chorus of heavenly praise. So, in a sense, we've reached the same end point, but as the book of Revelation almost always does, the next end point always takes you further than the last end point. And you'll notice that this this praise comes in three waves. Um, I had an advert on radio yesterday for Harry Christopher's and the 16. Some of you listen to their music. This is this is the four creatures and the 24 elders, this, this music group. And they begin and they sing. And they sing about what Christ is to his people, that he ransoms his people, that he makes them royal priests, that he turns them into saints who reign on the earth. Grace reigns in our lives, says Paul, through righteousness to eternal life. And they're praising Christ for what He has done, for who He is. And then it's as though the, the whole company of the angelic host breaks in. And we discover that, that this place is much more crowded than John thought it was in chapter 4. 
And we have these statistics of the angelic host, thousands, myriads of myriads, that's tens of thousands and tens of thousands, and they too are praising the Lord. And they are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And you think that's the end of it. But then at that, there's this picture of the whole creation joining in, staggeringly so. In verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. I mean, you could go through the details of this. Every creature in the sea begins to speak. It's this picture of of the cosmic adoration of God because of the way in which He has exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. This, we might say, is the movie version of what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, isn't it? He humbled himself, became uh, a servant, took the form of a man, was obedient even to death, death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Christ is Lord. And John is brought into this amazing praise of the whole creation, whether willingly or unwillingly, bowing before the majesty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I hope you wish you were there. And I hope you remember what we saw last time, the way in which Hebrews 12 invites us to understand that, that, that we are there, that when we come like this to worship, we, we become the antechamber of the, the temple of God, uh, that we, we are like those who assembled in God's presence at Sinai, but, but we have come to angels in festal gathering and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who shed his blood to bring us in. But some other things I think worth noting about what we learn here, and, and one of them I think is this, that it's not the main message but Jesus Christ is worshipped as divine in this passage. He is worshipped in the same way the Father is worshipped. There is no, whatever you hear, there is no doubt whatsoever that the early Christians believed in the deity of the Lord Jesus. And what is so fascinating is that the ones who were Jews and therefore monotheistic and the ones who knew him best, including his half-brothers, believed in this most clearly. And this is why he is adored and worshipped, because he is the very Son of God. Second thing that is really worth our noting in our own time is the nature of their praise. The way in which their praise gives such marvelous expression to the truth of the gospel. And, and we ought to be caught up in that kind of praise. The third thing I want you to notice is this. Yes, this is a vision. Yes, these are pictures and symbols. But what we can be sure of is that the reality, if anything, is even more amazing than these biblical symbols through which the reality is expressed. And so, let me put it like this. This is what heaven is actually like. This is what heaven is actually like. This is what happens in heaven. Every knee bowed to Christ, every eye focused on Christ, every heart given over to Christ. 
which does raise the very obvious question, why is it that so many people assume they want to go to heaven when they hate this on earth? That must be one of the great miasmas that takes over people's minds. Of course we want to go to heaven. But you see, if we want to go to heaven, we would want this adoration of Jesus in our hearts now. And that's the real test, isn't it? I remember years and years ago, many years ago, I was driving to something in Fort William. I think it was in a winter day, turned on the radio. I heard a half-hour program in which then very famous people were being asked what they thought about heaven. And I became fascinated by a pattern that I noticed beginning to emerge. And uh, the program was half an hour, and I made very sure I listened with great care until the continuity announcer came on at the end. And I knew that not one single one of these famous people asked to describe heaven had mentioned God or Christ or the Spirit or worship or the saints, and the truth was, in their hearts they hated heaven. What they wanted was a a heaven in which they were at the center, in which their aspirations were fulfilled, and not a heaven in which every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you notice what happens, what people say, what strange creatures say, what angels say, what the saints say, that blessing and honor and glory and power are to be given to him, that he is to receive wealth and wisdom and honor and blessing. So, what would possess you to think that you would want that then? if you don't actually want it now. And let me put the question another way. Why, when that is going to be his then, why would you want to keep back any part of it from him now, of power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? Remember the very clever thing C.S. Lewis says in, I think it's in book three of uh, Mere Christianity, where he comments on cynical people who say about others, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly use. And Lewis comments on the fact that the very reverse is the truth, that it's those Christians who have been most heavenly-minded who have done most for Christ in the world. The apostles themselves, he says, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then he says this, very tellingly, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then famously, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in as well. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. He never spoke a truer word. So may we become like John, so heavenly-minded, so focused on our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in fact of much earthly good. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this chapter in Your Word, for, for, for the inspiration of it by Your Holy Spirit, and for the way in which it is also so gloriously inspiring to those who believe, to catch a sight of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, of His mighty power, His saving grace. Lord, help us to live in this Make us a congregation that becomes part of that congregation when we worship, that strangers who come in 
may sense something heavenly taking place in this room. And may that heavenly atmosphere live with us through the whole course of the week, that in every decision we make, in every reaction we have, in every word we speak, we may be so filled with a desire that Jesus Christ should have all that we are, that His grace and love and wisdom may begin to be seen in our lives. Lord, may we too on this Lord's Day be in the Spirit to see the Lord Jesus exalted. And we pray this in His name. Amen. We're going to bring our worship to a close this morning by singing Psalm 24, um, verses 7 to 10. We're going to sing this a cappella. Alistair will lead us as we stand and sing this, and the tune is St. George's Edinburgh. And if we can remain standing for the benediction at the end. Your send you help from his sanctuary and grant you support from on high. May grace and peace be to you from the God who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Amen.